Welcome to No Compromise, where faith and reason fuse in conversation. Qu'il sont pour les pieds. Hello, Johnny. Hello, everyone. Wow, we're on the last week of the year. I know. Isn't that exciting? Yeah. And we decided that we would finish out the year discussing a series of episodes that you put out at the beginning of the year called Hegel, the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. This is just kind of a refresher. And that was because that series was really deep. In fact, it was probably more geared to reading material than listening material, wouldn't you say? Yep. And that leads us to possibility that maybe we'll work on publishing that material. Right, right. In a book. Right. So. In book form. Right. Okay. So anyway, those episodes were numbers 35 through 42. And in the last few No Compromise episodes, we um, already discussed how important it is to understand Hegel in order to understand what's going on today. Right. I think it's absolutely necessary right. for our culture to understand why we've come where we are. And I think Hegel really lies at the base of all of it. Right. And I... <laughs> I'm not sure if this is the good place to say it or not, but we listen to Jordan Peterson's podcast quite often. Mm -hmm. And so often as we're listening, Jordan Peterson will say something like, I don't understand how they can believe these two contradictory things at the same time. Right. And I always pipe up and say, it's Hegel. <laughs> Hegel. It's Hegel. <laughs> and nobody ever seems to quite get that it is Hegel's logic mm -hmm. that has pervaded our culture to such an extent that, as my advisor, Amano Benchevenga, said in his great book, Hegel's Dialectical Logic, we don't seem to be able to think in any other way exactly. anymore. Exactly. Okay, so this is the last episode of No Compromise for the Year, and it's the last episode in our discussion of Hegel, the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. So this is going to cover the concluding three episodes that you did called Hegel, the Ugly. Those are episodes 40, 41, and 42, and you have to cover all three right. in 45 minutes. So keep in mind... We said this the last time too. Keep in mind that it seems like we're running over the same things over and over again. And you, you say it's like peeling an onion. Right. Layer there is after no, layer. There's no other way to understand Hegel. Mm -hmm. Hegel's logic itself is constructed like an onion mm -hmm. because it is that constant process yeah. of thesis, antithesis, synthesis that creates layer after layer of the logic that constructs the entire universe for right. Hegel. Right. Reason itself working out the process. So Hegel's entire philosophy is an onion. Right. And so it shouldn't be surprising to us that trying to understand Hegel involves peeling down the layers of the onion. Yeah. Yeah. All right. As we went through the ugly Hegel, you came to a sort of revelation, didn't you? I did. Yeah. Yes. I came to the realization that probably the best way to understand the pernicious influence of Hegel on our culture is simply to call it the inversion. Right. That Hegel, by his very nature, by the nature of his logical structures, inverts the entire structure of the Western civilization. Right. Now, Hegel himself didn't do this because, as we said, Hegel, Hegel had could. a certain amount of humility right. in his undertaking. And that was sort of a Hegelian conservatism. Mm -hmm. He was holding on to what Nietzsche called, if we remember last time, the corpse of God. Right. God was dead. Hegel killed transcendence, but he continued to feed off it in order to maintain the sort of centrality of value that kept the West alive for a long time. Mm -hmm. And we have fed on that same corpse for close to a century now right. after Marx. Right. And we're coming to the end, I think, mm -hmm. of it. Yeah. Okay, so that's a good place to begin. This this whole series can be summed up in Hegel inverted everything. Right. Right. <laughs> mm -hmm. right. And the inversion is yeah. substituting imminence for transcendence. Yeah, and he just substitutes and the part for the You can't do whole. that. Mm -hmm. Because if you do that, you're cutting off all that our minds say to us right. as we look at the world around us that points beyond this world to transcendent realities. Mm -hmm. Mathematics does it. Mm -hmm. Science does it. Yeah. Not just theology. In fact, theology, the assertion of transcendence, is precisely the outcome of following the logic of rational interaction with what is evident. Yeah, it's like yeah. we can't think of science without mathematics, right. and mathematics points us to realities that we can't see. There is no such thing as a perfect circle in imminence. 
There is no such thing as a perfect square in eminence. All of these things are ideals that are beyond the real world. Right, right. And Hegel cuts us off from that. He embraces the part instead of the whole. Right. We human beings are fundamentally, as Socrates said, ignorant creatures. Mm -hmm. And not just ignorant, but fundamentally limited in time and in place. It would take a God's eye view to make the claims that Hegel makes. Right, right. That's the only way you could make them. Mm -hmm. And that's why I say Hegel took God's seat in creating his philosophy. So then Hegel starts what you call the mother of all prescriptivist moves, or that reality is no more than mind. Yes. Yeah. So, right. Hegel actually, in inverting transcendence and eminence, makes the mother of all prescriptivist moves, even though he himself considered his philosophy to be essentially descriptivist. Mm -hmm. So the inversion starts with Hegel himself, with the big lie that all of reality is just the part of reality that is imminence. So he is deceiving himself, and he is attempting to deceive all the rest of us, Mm -hmm. because reality is not just mind. There is something beyond mind, or mind could not exist, because mind is the reaching out towards reality. Mm -hmm. Remember the last time Nietzsche, he saw it for what it was? Yes. Yeah, Nietzsche, picking up on Hegel's philosophy, Mm -hmm. actually said, hey, we can do this, but we should recognize it for what it is. It is the destruction of the Western world. Right. And something new will have to come from this if there is to be any success to it. Right. Okay. And we called it the death of God. Right. All right. So the death of God means the death of a central value around which our culture, the Western culture, can gather and can agree that there is a truth and there is a reality. And it is our responsibility to conform ourselves, our thinking, our lives to that ultimate reality that ultimate right and wrong, which is God. When we lose that, and that's the death of transcendence, the death of God, then instead, we are going to, as different collective centers organize themselves, substitute various other values, and they will be in place of God. We are living off the corpse of God in the sense of we have continued to carry through, even after the death of transcendence, on all of the things that transcendence gave us. Right. But the corpse is being consumed, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And we're, we're getting to the end of it. And it falls apart into... The prescriptive Hegelians. Yeah, yeah. Yes, because the center no longer holds. Reason itself has fallen apart into collective centers mm-hmm. rather than the centrality of the Western view of God that yeah. held us together. And what I say at the end of this episode is this. The history of post-Hegelian philosophy, and by this I mean the prescriptive Hegelians, is in many ways the history of this process of substitution. The Nazis, following Hegel's praise of the German state and culture and their own notions of racial superiority, substituted the Third Reich. Right. While the Hegelian right, as we've said, elevates some aspect of what is to the status of ultimate value. Siding with the dialectic thesis, remember thesis, antithesis, synthesis, synthesis. Synthesis. Mm -hmm. the left sides with the opposition, the antithesis, that is, Marx, more subtle, intellectually comprehensive, and ethically focused than the fascists, substituted the notion of economic justice, the socialist utopia, as the absolute. So, Hegel. Mm -hmm while inverting reality, clung to the Western conception of the goodness of creation. Quote, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. It is exactly this Hegelian conservatism, Mm -hmm. Hegel's descriptive philosophical practice, that Marx inverts. So here we have another inversion. Right, right. What God saw as, quote, very good, Marx and the prescriptive Hegelians see as very bad. Mm -hmm. If Hegel's inversion of reality was the first big lie, Marx's inversion of value is the second and bigger lie, which sets the pattern for all that follows. 
if Hegel took God's seat, Marx claimed God's moral authority and power. Right. Paraphrasing Marx, philosophers have until now only described the world in various ways. Yeah. The point is to change it. And that is the clearest statement in Marx's own words mm -hmm. of the prescriptive in what I call the prescriptive Hegelians. Because now we're going to dictate to reality what must be the case, mm -hmm. what should be the case. Right. So precisely as Nietzsche predicted, if we remember from last time, man, in this case Marx, mm -hmm. and he will be followed by many others, will have to become God in order to justify his murder. Right. Reality, truth, and value, what we understood as absolutes, as transcendent things in the old order, the Western order of things, mm -hmm. must be remade in the image of the Shadowlands, in the image of man. At this point in our discussion, Jenny and I were forced to stop recording. In the interval, a new approach suggested itself to us. We hope you enjoy it. So initially, we were going to discuss these last three episodes of your Hegel series systematically, just like, you know, just like we did in the preceding material. Yep. But then it just so happened that right before we planned to record, you picked up Paralandra to yep. read aloud to me. <laughs> yeah. And you, you had started reading it aloud recently, like before, but but we kind of put it aside to read some other stuff. So so you picked it up again, and, and the chapter that you read was uncannily, it was uncannily an exact application of the very thing that we were about to record. Right. So that's kind of when we had the idea that why don't we use Paralandra to explain Hegel the Ugly? Right. took me a little while to come along around to see it, but as I started to listen to the material that we'd already recorded, I had to concede that it sounded an awful lot like the material that we'd already <laughs> recorded over the last five episodes right. of No Compromise. Yeah. So an example would probably be more effective yeah. than yeah. Um, continuing to drone on about the levels of the onion. <laughs> so this is going to be a discussion on your Hegel, the ugly, using Paralandra as the application of your material. Right. And I actually never understood before that if you want to understand the character Weston in mm -hmm. Paralandra, you must understand Hegelian idealism. Right. Right. And we read this before. And yes. You, you didn't, I don't think you caught it so strongly as you did this time. Right. I guess because we're involved in the middle of a, a Hegel, yeah. Hegel marathon. <laughs> yeah. So, John, I guess we need to start by providing background information on Paralandra, okay. right? Okay. So, C.S. Lewis wrote a sort of philosophical slash sci-fi trilogy called the Space Trilogy. Um, when were these written? Well, we just looked up Paralandra. It was 1943. That's right. So, so we've been around out World of the War Silent Planet. World War II been, time. Right, 19, in the 19, early 1940s. Yeah, so that kind of gives us an idea of what the world was like when they were written. Right. Yeah. yeah in fact, he makes allusions here in Paralandra right. that um, the war was going on while he was writing it. Mm -hmm. um, the titles of the three books in the series are Out of the Silent Planet, Paralandra, and That Hideous Strength. And we won't give you the entire storyline, but the plot is basically a philologist named Ransom is kidnapped, taken to Mars in the first book, and he meets the inhabitants. Then in the second book, he journeys to an unspoiled Venus to face a battle of good versus evil. And then finally, the third book, Ransom is one of several characters on Earth battling against a group that wants to take control of the Earth. Does that sound like a good summary? That's a pretty good quick summary. Yeah. And Paralandra, the one we're going to deal with, that is the name of the planet Venus. Right. I was just going to say right. that that's Venus, also known as Paralandra. So, and the one we're going to focus on, like you said, is Paralandra, and that's when Ransom travels to Venus. And in this book, he encounters one person who is the first woman of this world, and she's searching for the first man of this world. Right. So, it's the equivalent of our Adam and Eve. Yeah. Yeah. And the first part of this book is kind of like an earth-worn human's discussions with a brand new world's Paralandrian. You know, and, and it's kind of interesting listening. Those conversations are fascinating, but eventually an evil from Earth enters Paralandra. Right. A man by the name of Weston. Right. And he, he had been in the first book, 
And now he comes back in the second book. Right. He's a great physicist who solved the problem of space travel. Right. And the rest of Paralandra is kind of like a fight between Weston trying to corrupt Paralandra through this first woman while Ransom is trying to prevent this from happening. Right. And eventually, Weston is clearly- um, Hegelian? (laughs) (laughs) Weston is clearly- Possessed by either the devil himself or some sub-demon. Right. And we don't want to spoil the story. Right. So we're going to move straight to the portion or the, you know, the chapter that exemplifies your Hegel the Ugly series. Right. And it's it's early on or fairly early on in the book Mm -hmm. when Weston arrives from Earth and is not yet possessed. He's still himself. Right. And they have a conversation. And that's where we pick up right. the thread and of this. When you say they have a conversation, Ransom and Weston. Ransom and Weston have a conversation. And yes. they know they know each other on Earth. They knew each other on Earth. Right. And they knew each other from the, the Malacandra out of the out silent. Of, yeah, from the first book in the series. Right. And Weston wasn't a good guy then either. Right. <laughs> in fact, he's the one he's the, the one that kidnapped Ransom and the first one and takes him to uh Malacandra right. to Mars. Maybe the best way to understand the character Weston Mm -hmm. is to remark that in the first book, Out of the Silent Planet, he represents what we have been calling the creedal atheist. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. The believer in materialism, as we've talked about it from the Enlightenment. Right. Right. When they abandon transcendence, but they're still holding on to those values that the Western tradition through Christianity has had in place. He no longer believes in God, but he does hold on to those transcendent values. Yeah, yeah. In the first book then, he's bad. Yeah. Um, but not nearly so corrupt as he becomes in Paralandra. Paralandra, right. And in Paralandra, he represents what we have called practical or right. prescriptive Hegelian atheism, mm-hmm. to coin a new phrase, mm-hmm. in which those Western values have been Inverted. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I guess our procedure here will be to essentially read the text mm-hmm. and comment on it as we go and hopefully gain a clear understanding of how the prescriptive Hegelians play out. Right. Because in almost every way that I could spell it out, mm-hmm. Weston has here taken on the mantle of the prescriptive Hegelians. Right. Right. Here were two human beings, thrown together in an alien world under conditions of inconceivable strangeness, the one separated from his spaceship, the other newly released from the threat of instant death. Weston had held ransom at gunpoint. Right. Was it sane, was it imaginable, that they should find themselves at once engaged in a philosophical argument which might just as well have occurred in a Cambridge combination room? Yet that, apparently, was what Weston insisted upon. He showed no interest in the fate of his spaceship. He even seemed to feel no curiosity about Ransom's presence on Venus. Could it be that he had traveled more than 30 million miles of space in search of conversation? But as he went on talking, Ransom felt himself more and more in the presence of a monomaniac. And that also is an element of the prescriptive Hegelians. Right. There is a sort of monomania about the notion. They, it, it, it becomes an ideological issue, just mm-hmm. like the wokists today. Right. They assume racism everywhere. Mm-hmm. And it's not whether or not it's there. It's just that they have to find it. Right. And not just racism, but oppression or- Patriarchy. Yeah, the patriarchy. They find the <laughs> you patriarchy. You have so much everywhere. trouble with that word. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, so it's like that. They they have this monomania. They see one thing and they find it everywhere. Everything revolves around their ideology. Okay, so picking back up with the text, mm-hmm. like an actor who cannot think of anything but his celebrity, or a lover who can think of nothing but his mistress. Tense, tedious, and unescapable. The scientist pursued his fixed idea. Mm-hmm. And that monomaniac thing is really important right. because they are crazy mm-hmm. fastened on this idea of racism or of sexism, and they find it everywhere and yeah. they interpret everything in the world around that right. uh, oppression from the Marxists. Every cat stuck in a tree. <laughs> <laughs> 
The tragedy of my life, Weston said, and indeed of the modern intellectual world in general, is the rigid specialization of knowledge entailed by the growing complexity of what is known. And this is, a, this is another element that uh, I see in the intellectual world that I grew up in with in, as in my philosophical career. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody assumes that we are just so much brighter and more intelligent and knowledgeable now than we've ever been. Yeah. And there's an yeah. element of that that's correct. But right. it fails to recognize that we are still fundamentally limit, right. limited, ignorant creatures. Right. So, yeah. So th- there's a an arrogance of knowledge and, in the intellectual world. Yeah. In the original Hegel the Ugly, you were going to compare Kant and Hegel. We've done that before. Right. Where you said Kant recognized those limitations. Right. Kant recognizes it and Hegel seeks to constantly transcend it. That's right. sort of specialized knowledge mm-hmm. that we call Gnosticism. And that that's what claim. you're going to see in this right. reading right now. God's seat. Right. That's and, what happens. Yep. We'll see that here clearly. Mm-hmm. It is my own share in that tragedy, Weston continues, that an early devotion to physics has prevented me from paying any proper attention to biology until I reached the 50s. To do myself justice, I should make it clear that the false humanist ideal of knowledge as an end in itself never appealed to me. See, that that is good. That is, I think, one of the things that God embraces for us as human beings, to pursue knowledge for knowledge's sake, because knowledge is knowledge of God. Mm -hmm. All real knowledge is knowledge of truth Mm -hmm. and therefore of divine being. Right, and ends up glorifying him. And yeah, Weston says that never appealed to him. Right. To just seek knowledge for knowledge's sake. Instead, everything is a means to an end. Right. There's that thing we've talked about before. Which, All ethics is motivated yeah. by the end that they're pursuing. And creates bondage rather than freedom. Right. Creates yeah. bondage rather than freedom. Okay, moving on with the text. I always wanted to know in order to achieve utility. And there it is. Ends justify the means. Right. At first, that utility naturally appeared to me in a personal form. I wanted scholarships, an income, and that generally recognized position in the world without which a man has no leverage. When those were attained, I began to look farther, to the utility of the human race. He paused as he rounded his period, and Ransom nodded to him to proceed. And that's important, because there's a progression in Weston's life. In Malacandra, we see him promoting the good of the human race. Yeah, yeah. But now he's become a full idealist, Mm -hmm. and he's about to reveal that to us. The utility of the human race, continued Weston, in the long run, depends rigidly on the possibility of interplanetary and even intersidereal travel. That problem I solved. The key of human destiny was placed in my hands. It would be unnecessary and painful to us both to remind you how it was wrenched from me in Malacandra by a member of a hostile, intelligent species whose existence, I admit, I had not anticipated. Not hostile exactly, said Ransom, but go on. And I'll leave that as a teaser for the the story itself. (laughs) The rigors of our return journey from Malacandra led to a serious breakdown in my health. Mine too said Ransom. Weston looked somewhat taken aback at the interruption and went on. During my convalescence, I had that leisure for reflection which I had denied myself for many years. In particular, I reflected on the objections you had felt to that liquidation of the non-human inhabitants of Malacandra, which was, of course, the necessary preliminary to its occupation by our own species. So Weston had made it clear that what he wanted to do on Mars was to wipe out the species, plural, that were there in order to populate it with humanity. Right. Thinking that the species were subhuman. Right. Subhuman and therefore had no value. Right. Going on. The traditional, and if I may say so, the humanitarian form in which you advanced those objections, and he's speaking to Ransom here, had till then concealed from me their true strength. That strength I now began to perceive. So we see a shift in Weston's thinking here, mm-hmm. and it seems to be going in Ransom's direction. Yeah. I, be- I began to see that my own exclusive devotion to human utility was really based on an unconscious dualism. What do you mean? asked Ransom. I mean that all my life I had been making a wholly unscientific dichotomy 
or antithesis between man and nature. Where did we hear that word before? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Had conceived myself fighting for man against his non-human environment. And we can think of this in terms of thesis and antithesis. And as we said, the Hegelian right fights for the thesis. Mm -hmm. The Hegelian left fights for the antithesis. During my illness, I plunged into biology. And of course, that means evolutionary biology. And particularly into what may be called biological philosophy. Hitherto, as a physicist, I had been content to regard life as a subject outside my scope. The conflicting views of those who drew a sharp line between the organic and the inorganic, and those who held that what we call life was inherent in matter from the very beginning, had not interested me. Now, it did. And notice here, and this is mm-hmm. is subtle perhaps, yeah. but this is an argument that I have made for a long time. Mm-hmm. That the doctrine of evolution yeah. is almost inconceivable outside of some sort of process metaphysics, some sort of philosophy that does what Hegel's philosophy does. Yeah. Now, I can't make direct connections historically between Hegel's philosophy and Darwin. Yeah. I don't know. I would have to study it more, but I've read some things on it, and there doesn't seem to be a strong contact that. Darwin ever read Hegel or was even strongly influenced by Hegel. Right. But I think it was in the air. And I'm I'm not arguing against evolution here. Yeah. I tend to think that evolution is probably the correct answer. I think that is exactly what happened. But that's irrelevant to the point. I think that the doctrine of evolution was easy to accept because we had begun to think in an Hegelian manner mm-hmm. that all things evolve. And that notion of a positive evolution of everything is at the very base of Hegelian philosophical understanding. The conflicting views of those who drew a sharp line between the organic and the inorganic, and those who held what we call life, was inherent in matter from the very beginning, had not interested me. Now it did. I saw almost at once that I could admit no break, no discontinuity in the unfolding of the cosmic process. Now that is as Hegelian mm-hmm. as you get in exactly. terms of a philosophical explanation of the origin of life or everything right, right. of the entire universe, the cosmic process. And then he says this, I became a convinced believer in emergent evolution. Mm-hmm. All is one. This is that logic of both and that Hegel gives us. There are no real contradictions, no real substances. Everything is part of the same unfolding process. The stuff of mind, he continues, the unconsciously purposive dynamism is present from the very beginning. That is Hegel's philosophy. Here he paused. Ransom had heard this sort of thing pretty often before, and wondered when his companion was coming to the point. When Weston resumed, it was with an even deeper solemnity of tone. The majestic spectacle of this blind, inarticulate purposiveness, thrusting its way upward, and ever upward, in an endless unity of differentiated achievements towards an ever-increasing complexity of organization, Towards spontaneity and spirituality swept away all my old conception of a duty to man as such. (laughs) Again, this is such a clear presentation of Hegel's philosophy. And it's probably worth noting, even at this point, Mm -hmm. that Lewis was a strong believer before he became a Christian in idealism. Right. He didn't necessarily have a knowledge of. Hegel. Right. In fact, he probably never studied Hegel at all. Right. Hegelianism had penetrated into English culture and especially into the English university mm-hmm. through F.H. Bradley mm-hmm. and others. So it was alive and well and something that C.S. Lewis himself taught mm-hmm. and understood very well. And what you are trying to say has pervaded our... Exactly. Mm-hmm. And although Lewis himself probably would not have traced it back to Hegel... Mm-hmm. I would say exactly the same thing has happened to us. Right. Our thinking 
has been so profoundly and deeply influenced by Hegel's logic that we just simply do it unconsciously. It is how we think, and we're not even aware that we do it. Right. And part of the purpose of this series is to try to make us aware, and I hope that this example mm-hmm. in particular helps us all to see how Hegelian thinking has become a part of our own thinking process. Weston continues, The majestic spectacle of this blind, inarticulate purposiveness thrusting its way upward and ever upward in an endless unity of differentiated achievements towards an ever-increasing complexity of organization, towards spontaneity and spirituality, swept away all my old conception of a duty to man as such. Man in himself is nothing. The forward movements of life, the growing spirituality is everything. Mm -hmm. And last episode, if you remember, we read that quote from Hegel's Philosophy of History, where he talks about the great man or pursuing the great idea Mm -hmm. and trampling down many an innocent flower and crushing the individual because individuals are merely means to an end. Mm -hmm. Weston is now seeing himself in that way. I remember reading that abortion, remember? Killing a baby is just merely... Right, and which which one of our episodes? That, I forget which episode it was, but it was that article right. that abortion is murder and there's nothing, or is killing and there's nothing wrong with it. And there's it. nothing wrong with right. it, right? And it, you think of it as just putting out, you know, take crushing a flower. Or what was it? Oh, that's right. Picking she a flower. Picking a flower. Picking a flower. Right. Yeah, and that's worth your going back and listening to. I think that was mm-hmm. one of our better no compromises, yep. actually. So at this point. Weston is saying man in himself is nothing. So if man is nothing, the highest value that he saw back in that out of the silent planet, now he's saying man is nothing. Man can be trampled down, but what can't be is the advancement of spirit, which is essentially what he's embracing now. Man in himself is nothing. The forward movements of life, the growing spirituality is everything. I say to you quite freely, Ransom that I should have been wrong in liquidating the Malachandrians. It was a mere prejudice that made me prefer our own race to theirs. To spread spirituality, not to spread the human race, is henceforth my mission. Hmm. And notice how close this gets to a religious conception. So much of what passes for spirituality today is exactly like this. Right, right. This sort of vague notion of being spiritual, mm-hmm. of sending good vibes. And we said before, having a form of godliness, but denying but the denying power. The we power say it over it. and over. Yeah. Yep. Uh, even someone like Sam Harris mm-hmm. comes across having a form of spirituality right. like this. What does he teach? Like transcendental meditation or something Is like that? Is that what he, he does? Pushes. Okay, I'm not and, sure. Yeah, it's, it's, it's either that or yoga or something <laughs> like that. Okay. Yeah. So even Sam Harris, uh, a supposedly hard-headed intellectual rationalist, is pushing a form of spirituality. It has a God-shaped vacuum. Yes. (laughs) This, he continues, sets the coping stone on my career. I worked first for myself, then for science, then for humanity, but now, at last, for spirit itself. I might say, borrowing language which will be more familiar to you, the Holy Spirit. Now, what exactly do you mean by that? asked Ransom. I mean, said Weston, that nothing now divides you and me except a few outworn theological technicalities with which organized religion has unhappily allowed itself to get encrusted. But I have penetrated that crust. The meaning behind it is as true and living as ever. If you will excuse me for putting it that way, the essential truth of the religious view of life finds a remarkable witness in the fact that it enabled you, on Malacandra, to grasp, in your own mythical and imaginative fashion, a truth which was hidden from me. Now notice that Weston here does what so much of current mystical religion does. Mm -hmm. He talks about outworn theological technicalities, Christian doctrine. Right. It's like everyone wants to get rid of this and make Jesus into a nice man, mm-hmm. a good teacher. That's one of the ways in which they do it. Mm-hmm. And the other is just to say, okay, 
Now I'm going to get myself in trouble. <laughs> because in the evangelical church, yeah. we have embraced a Jesus who's not the real Jesus. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because Jesus was not just a nice guy. Mm -hmm. He was he was a man mm -hmm. who actually stood for real things right. and fought against the world right. and went to his death standing mm -hmm. for his principles mm -hmm. and his reality. And this is not something we're teaching mm -mm. anymore. Mm -mm. And challenged people. I yeah, we've of... become a milk toast right. church. Right. And all of these people tend to think that, as Weston does here, that they know better mm -hmm. now, right? Religion has moved on from those old views. And we see this in the woke evangelicals today. Yes. Right? Yeah. They look back on the old church and say, oh no, how silly right. that they don't accept trans dogma. Right. Trans Sunday story hour. Yeah. And they've moved on. They know better mm -hmm. than we do. And the Bible is just an old document that means nothing really anymore. We just are supposed to take these milk toast truths right. from it, right. but ignore its hard stuff. Right. Thomas Jefferson Bible. Right, the Thomas Jefferson Bible. <laughs> One of the comics did something on that yeah. too. It's like the My Bible, yeah. where you get to <laughs> the put me in what Bible. you want. <laughs> the Me Bible. Yeah. <laughs> so Ransom responds, I don't know much about what people call the religious view of life, said Ransom, wrinkling his brow. You see, I'm a Christian, and what we mean by the Holy Ghost is not a blind, inarticulate purposiveness. And you'll note here that Christianity takes a stand for real meaning. Right. Words mean something. Right. And right. what they mean is unchangeable. God is not changeable. That's one of the characteristics that we talked about before. Mm -hmm. And this idea that everything is grayscale and we must compromise mm -hmm. over and over again with all of these new movements and new ideas mm -hmm. is wrong. Right. And it is wrong at the most fundamental level. There are real truths. Mm -hmm. There are real rights and wrongs. And that's what they're trying to destroy with this Hegelian nonsense. My dear Ransom, mm -hmm. said Weston. And you can hear the contempt in yeah. his voice, <laughs> right? This retrogressive contempt. Yeah. Because you are playing the part of those older people who only stood, understood a part of the truth. We know better. Gnosticism. Yes, the Gnosticism. I understand you perfectly. I have no doubt that my phraseology will seem strange to you, and perhaps even shocking. Early and revered associations may have put it out of your power to recognize, in this new form, the very same truths which religion has so long preserved, and which science is now at last rediscovering. But whether you can see it or not, believe me, we are talking about exactly the same thing. And we hear about that over and over again, too. Ransom responds, I'm not at all sure that we are. And when a wokist talks about being a nice Christian, mm -hmm. they're not meaning the same thing that yes. Christianity means. Right, right. Because being nice without being ethical means you're not being nice no, exactly. at all. Mm -hmm. And they have thrown ethics out and watered it down mm -hmm. or focused on one element to the exclusion of all other. And that is not Christian ethics right. or ethics at all. Mm -hmm. Weston responds, that, if you will permit me to say so, is one of the real weaknesses of organized religion, that adherence to formula, that failure to recognize one's own friends. God is a spirit, Ransom. Get hold of that. You're familiar with that already. Stick to it. God is a spirit. Well, of course, said Ransom. But what then? What then? Why, spirit, mind, freedom, spontaneity. That's what I'm talking about. And there we see it. Mm -hmm. The development of, of Hegelian logic. The blending of all things into one. The thesis, antithesis, synthesis. That is the goal towards which the whole cosmic process is moving. The final disengagement of that freedom, that spirituality is the work. Mm -hmm. Oh, I hope that some of you are listening to James Lindsay understand how the work mm -hmm. is Hegelian and specifically Marxian socialist in its implications. Right, exactly. 
to which I dedicate my own life and the life of humanity. The goal, Ransom. The goal. Thesis, antithesis. Synthesis. Synthesis. Mm -hmm. Think of it. Pure spirit. The final vortex of self-thinking. Self-originating activity. And there you see the imminence. Mm -hmm. The imminence of Hegel. There is nothing beyond the activity. That is all there is. There is no transcendent to which activity is directed. Final, said Ransom, you mean it doesn't yet exist? Right? Mm -hmm. God is existence, eternal existence, the great I am, the unchanging reality. And yet, Hegelian philosophy teaches us that everything is process. Right. And so, no, it doesn't exist yet. In fact, the end goal never exists. It's always in the process, process. of unfolding, mm -hmm. because that is the very nature of reality mm -hmm. in Hegelian thinking. Right. Ah, said Weston, I see what's bothering you. Of course I know. Religion pictures it as being there from the beginning. But surely that is not a real difference. To make it one would be to take time too seriously. When it has once been attained, you might then say it has been at the beginning just as well as at the end. Time is one of the things it will transcend. By the way, said Ransom, is it in any sense at all personal? Is it alive? An indescribable expression passed over Weston's face. He moved a little nearer to Ransom and began speaking in a lower voice. That's what none of them understand, he said. It was such a gangster's or a schoolboy's whisper, and so unlike his usual oratund lecturing style, that Ransom, for a moment, felt a sensation almost of disgust. That is, there's something going on here more than what seems to be going on. Right, right. It seems as though they're having a conversation. But the deeper Weston goes into his ideological understanding of things, mm -hmm. The less he is being himself, right, and the more, as Jordan Peterson would talk about it, the more he is becoming possessed of the ideology, right, and Which perhaps find out possessed of something else, right. Yes, said Weston. I couldn't have believed myself till recently. Not a person, of course. So this great spirit thing that we're supposed to believe in is not personal, right, and that is Hegel too. It's transpersonal. It's above personal. It is the all in all, the process itself of working out. Right. It is reason and not in the form of a person. But what in the world? Mm -hmm. And Lewis asks himself this in Surprised by Joy yeah. in the process of his conversion. Yeah. And you'll see it actually in my story too. Right. If you look at the first eight episodes of The Christian Atheist. It's like, okay, so if I'm going to believe in this impersonal thing that's mm -hmm. doing all these, how does that differ? And why is that superior to believing in a personal God? Right, exactly. Weston continues, anthropomorphism, that is, looking at things in terms of human understanding, yeah. is one of the childish diseases of popular religion. There's that retrospective contempt mm -hmm. again. Here he had resumed his public manner. But the opposite extreme of excessive abstraction has perhaps in the aggregate proved more disastrous. Call it a force, a great inscrutable force pouring up into us from the dark bases of being, a force that can choose its instruments. And once again, that is what I said last time when we were listing yeah. the things out. Yeah. For Kant, Reason is a tool that human beings use for understanding. Right. For Hegel, human beings are Our a tool, tool that reason uses. Right. That's an inversion, mm -hmm. another inversion. Mm -hmm. It is only lately, Ransom, that I've learned from actual experience something which you have believed all your life as part of your religion. Here he suddenly subsided again into a whisper, a croaking whisper unlike his usual voice. Hmm. Guided, he said. Chosen. Guided. I've become conscious that I'm a man set apart. Why did I do physics? Why did I discover the Western rays? 
Why did I go to Malacandra? It, the force, has pushed me on all the time. And of course, this was popularized, this notion of the force Mm -hmm. popularized by Star Wars. Yeah, exactly. Which I've always thought is Hegelian Hegelian. in its understanding. Yeah. Yeah. And has been another thing that is a clear presentation of how Hegelianism has infected our culture. Yeah. So no Star Wars. So no Star Wars. That's right. Christians can't ever watch Star Wars again. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not a believer in that either. (laughs) I'm being guided, Ransom. I know now that I am the greatest scientist the world has yet produced. Hmm. I've been made so for a purpose. It is through me that spirit itself is at this moment pushing on to its goal. And, folks, Mm -hmm. this is the moment where the capstone of our points on the prescriptive Hegelians is made. Uh Because this is the point where you see yourself as As God, God, as taking the seat of God. Mm -hmm. Because now you know better. You are the force, the point of the spear that reason is using. You are sitting in God's seat. Mm -hmm. And... You take upon yourself then, as Marx did, not just the knowledge of God, mm-hmm. but as those great leaders of the socialist revolutions throughout history have taken on the ability to damn and to legislate, to create their own notion of what is right and wrong, and to destroy, to liquidate their fellow man in order to achieve their own understanding of the goals. Right. That they are being pushed by. Uh, and it goes even further back to Isaiah, where Satan says, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also on the mount of the congregation in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yes, exactly. Yep. We can trace it all the way back to Satan because it is the same mm-hmm. impulse. Mm-hmm. And that is the inversion. Right. As we said last time, the mother of all inversions mm-hmm. was Hegel's first inversion, right. taking imminence for transcendence. And that's exactly what Satan did. Mm-hmm. And that is what is so terrifying. There were individuals throughout history who have instantiated this. Yeah. But now it has become a cultural phenomenon, and it is something that we are all breathing as the air of right. our daily lives. And, you know, I'm not a big fan of doing any of the end time things in the Bible. I think oftentimes we get way too carried away about this, especially in the evangelical realm. Right. But it sure sounds an awful lot like that is what's being talked about. Look here, said Ransom. One wants to be careful about this sort of thing. There are spirits and spirits, you know. Eh? said Weston. What are you talking about? I mean a thing might be a spirit, and not good for you. But I thought you agreed that spirit was the good, the end of the whole process. I thought you religious people were all out for spirituality. What is the point of asceticism, fasts, and celibacy, and all that? Didn't we agree that God is a spirit? Don't you worship him because he is pure spirit? Good heavens, no. We worship him because he is wise and good. There's nothing especially fine about simply being a spirit. The devil is a spirit. Now you're mentioning the devil is very interesting, said Weston, who had by this time recovered his normal manner. It is a most interesting thing in popular religion, this tendency to vociferate, to breed pairs of opposites. Thesis, antithesis. Mm -hmm, Exactly. Heaven and hell, God and the devil. I need hardly say that, in my view, no real dualism in the universe is admissible. Right. Both and. Mm -hmm. Everything blends together in the thesis-antithesis-synthesis logic of Hegel. It all comes together in one. There is no real distinction. Right. And on that ground, I should have been disposed, even a few weeks ago, to reject these pairs of doublets as pure mythology. It would have been a profound error. The cause of this universal religious tendency is to be sought much deeper. The doublets are really portraits of spirit, of cosmic energy, self-portraits indeed, for it is the life force itself 
which has deposited them in our brains. What on earth do you mean? said Ransom. As he spoke, he rose to his feet and began pacing to and fro. A quite appalling weariness and malaise had descended upon him. Your devil and your God, said Weston, are both pictures of the same force. Your heaven is a picture of the perfect spirituality ahead. Your hell, a picture of the urge, or nisus, which is driving us onto it from behind. Hence the static peace of the one, and the fire and darkness of the other. The next stage of emergent evolution, beckoning us forward, is God. The transcended stage behind. That is mm -hmm. directly Hegelian logic. Yep. Ejecting us is the devil. And that's why the socialists, the prescriptive Hegelians on the left, always side with the antithesis. Yeah. Because the thesis that was arrived at previously in history right. is now the thing that's holding up the progress towards the higher, higher. understanding. Mm -hmm. And that's why all of the left today is seeking to destroy the Western world. Right. Because inevitably, spirit ascends mm -hmm. and things will only get better. And that Obviously. is a huge mistake. Obviously, right. Because history teaches us that things do not always get better unless you ignore history, right. which is exactly what they do. Mm -hmm. They ignore history. They ignore science. They ignore fact. They ignore the very evidence of our senses. Mm -hmm. They can claim that a man is a woman and a woman is a man. So as we said last time, when God is dead, all things are permissible. Right. Picking up with Weston again. The next stage of emergent evolution, beckoning us forward, is God. The transcended stage behind, ejecting us, is the devil. Your own religion, after all, says that the devils are fallen angels. Ransom replied, And you are saying precisely the opposite, as far as I can make out, that angels are devils who've risen in the world. It comes to the same thing, said Weston. There was another long pause. And again, now we see how evil becomes good and good evil. Mm -hmm. Look here, said Ransom. It's easy to misunderstand one another on a point like this. What you are saying sounds to me like the most horrible mistake a man could fall into. But that may be because in the effort to accommodate it to my supposed religious views, you're saying a good deal more than you mean. It's only a metaphor, isn't it? All this about spirits and forces? I expect all you really mean is that you feel it your duty to work for the spread of civilization and knowledge and that kind of thing. He had tried to keep out of his voice the involuntary anxiety which he had begun to feel. Next moment, he recoiled in horror at the cackling laughter, hmm. almost an infantile or senile laughter, with which Weston replied, There you go, there you go, he said, like all you religious people. You talk and talk about these things all your life, and the moment you meet the reality, you get frightened. And I can't help but see Michael Eric Dyson mm -hmm. That's right. talking with Jordan Peterson mm -hmm. in that one video on YouTube. Debate, yeah. Yep. That absolute burning contempt mm -hmm. and hatred right. of one side for the other mm -hmm. like that. And the absolute certainty right. that they're in the right. What proof, said Ransom, who indeed did feel frightened, what proof have you that you are being guided or supported by anything except your own individual mind and other people's books? You didn't notice, dear Ransom, said Weston, that I'd improved a bit since we last met in my knowledge of extraterrestrial language? You are a philologist, they tell me. Ransom started. How did you do it? He blurted out. And he's referring here to his ability to speak the, the <laughs> language that the lady speaks here on Paralandra. And, and they spoke on Malacandria. And that right? they spoke on Malacandria, yeah, yes. Yeah, it's like and the he, universal language. The universal language of the cosmos. Yeah. And somehow or other, Weston managed to speak it with perfect fluency mm -hmm. to the lady when he arrived. Ransom was startled by that. Yeah, because in the previous book, he wasn't, he wasn't able, able to, to yeah. right? Guidance, you know. Guidance, croaked Weston. He was squatting at the roots of his tree with his knees drawn up and his face, now the color of putty, wore a fixed and even slightly twisted grin. Guidance, guidance, he went on. Things coming into my head. 
I'm being prepared all the time, being made a fit receptacle for it. That ought to be fairly easy, said Ransom impatiently, if this life forth is something so ambiguous that God and the devil are equally good portraits of it. I suppose any receptacle is equally fit, and anything you can do is equally an expression of it. There's such a thing as the main current, said Weston. It's a question of surrendering yourself to that, making yourself the conductor of the live, fiery central purpose, becoming the very finger with which it reaches forward. But I thought, said Ransom, that was the devil aspect of it a moment ago. That is the fundamental paradox. The thing we are reaching forward to is what you would call God. The reaching forward, the dynamism, is what people like you always call the devil. The people like me who do the reaching forward are always martyrs. You revile us, and by us you come to your goal. Does that mean, in plainer language, that the things the force wants you to do are what ordinary people call diabolical? My dear Ransom, I wish you would not keep relapsing onto the popular level. The two things are only moments in the single unique reality. Spirit. The world leaps forward through great men, and greatness always transcends mere moralism. And again, that takes us back to that quote from philosophy of history mm -hmm. from last time. Yep. The great man leaps forward and crushes many a small flower, a beautiful flower. Mm -hmm. When the leap has been made, our diabolism, as you would call it, becomes the morality of the next stage. But while we are making it, we are called criminals, heretics, blasphemers which for a long time is exactly what we said the socialist right. program was. Right. And now it's now being it's... embraced with open arms. Mm -hmm. Ransom replies, how far does it go? And this is an important part, and we're, we're nearing the end here. Mm -hmm. How far does it go, Weston? Would you still obey the life force if you found it prompting you to murder me? Yes. Or to sell England to the Germans? Yes or to print lies as serious research in a scientific periodical. Yes, God help you, said Ransom. And I hate to say it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I know what you're going to say. We have done mm -hmm. and are doing mm -hmm. all of those things right now. Right. And it's being embraced as truth and kindness mm -hmm. and justice, right? Let's take our children in and let them choose their gender and let them be sterilized maimed, as women maimed, maimed and have life. their penises chopped off as men, as boys. Mm -hmm. That is no different from sacrificing our children to Moloch. Mm -hmm. Right. And those things, pedophilia and all of those kinds yes, of things. Yes, pedophilia. We're wrong. Right. Clearly we, wrong. Right. We look down at them. And now, because we have chosen to turn everything into grayscale, there is no right mm -hmm. and no wrong. Exactly. God help you, said Ransom. Yeah. And I say, yeah, I God help say, us, right? <laughs> because we are now living in a world full of Westons. Right. You are still wedded to your conventionalities, said Weston. And then we hear that over and over again, how retrogressive we are. Mm -hmm. How bad we are for sticking to the traditional morality that has brought our world to a place where poverty has almost been eliminated in the world. Right. The standard of living for humankind has never been higher across the entire human spectrum. A place where you have time to yep. think of these crazy these things. These crazy things. <laughs> And they are in the process place, of dismantling it. A place where you can think of these crazy things and get paid to do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we're not getting paid for doing what we're doing. Yeah. <laughs> you are still wedded to your conventionalities, said Weston, still dealing in abstractions. Can you not even conceive a total commitment? A commitment to something which utterly overrides all our petty ethical pigeonholes? And man, that is what the wokists preach, mm -hmm. a total commitment. And that is what God demands. And it's not what our churches are teaching. Right. Ransom grasped at the straw. Wait, Weston, he said abruptly. 
That may be a point of contact. You say it's a total commitment. That is, you're giving up yourself. You're not out for your own advantage. No, wait half a second. This is the point of contact between your morality and mine. We both acknowledge... Idiot, said Weston. His voice was almost a howl, and he had risen to his feet. Idiot, he repeated. Can you understand nothing? Will you always try to press everything back into the miserable framework of your old jargon about self and self-sacrifice? Those old views that must be destroyed and taken over and suppressed, and if all else fails, the adherents of them must be liquidated. Mm -hmm. That is the old accursed dualism in another form. There is no possible distinction in concrete thought between me and the universe. Insofar as I am the conductor of the central forward pressure of the universe, (laughs) I am it. (laughs) There you go. Hegel claimed to be God, Mm -hmm. but limited himself to description and had a sort of conservative view. Mm -hmm. And that preserved the corpse of God for quite some time. Right. But now, especially in Marx, as the originator of the prescriptive Hegelians. Mm -hmm. They claim the seat of God. Yeah. They claim to be God. Right. And each collective center does this. And that's why, as the postmoderns tell it, everything has devolved to power. The only way to decide between different collective centers is power. Right. Do you see, you timid, scruple-mongering fool? I am the universe. I, Weston, am your God and your devil. I call that force into me completely. Then horrible things began happening. And with that, I will end our reading of Paralandra. Cliffhanger, huh? Yeah. You can read it (laughs) yourselves and see where it goes from here. But that is the clearest picture of the prescriptive Hegelians that I can draw. Mm Mm-hmm. And I hope it was valuable in completing this series and helping all of us to understand a little more clearly what it is we're dealing with and why this series on Hegel is so important for me to get across. Right. Especially, most importantly, is how we are all thinking that like that without even realizing it. Right. It's just part of our existence now. Yes. And so we wind down our year with this as what I think may be one of the most important things we've undertaken here at The Christian Atheist. And it gives the proper meaning to this podcast, Mm -hmm. No Compromise, because that is what we need to get back to. The Hegelian spirit that has permeated our culture teaches us always to compromise. Always find the middle road. Always find a way to agree. Mm -hmm. That's garbage. What we need to get back to is on truth, on ethics. There is no compromise to be made, for that is God's position. Mm -hmm. I guess we can call this no compromise episode Hegel the Ugly or Paralandra and the Prescriptive Hegelians. Yes, I like that title. Okay, so thank you everyone for taking time to join us here this year. We've appreciated the time you've given us. Indeed. Mm -hmm. Be sure to join us the beginning of this new year, 2023, because we're going to take a new approach to all three of our podcasts. We're going to combine them where we have the Christian Atheist, No Compromise, and Simple Gifts, kind of um, cross-branding all of them, huh? Right. And hopefully this will be a more practical and less theoretical approach Mm-hmm. to help Christians to deal with the world in which we find ourselves. Right, right. And also to challenge those who are maybe unbelieving members to think more clearly about their own world. Yeah. Because I don't think I'd need to make an argument for God. Mm-hmm. I think the argument is there in all of the objective realities right. around us. Right. You just so, want to be a signpost right. to point the way. Pointing the way. Right. That is our job here mm-hmm. at the Christian Atheist for right. Jenny and I both. On Mondays, the Christian Atheist will continue to present a sort of discourse episode on something that you've done in the past with simple gifts. Right. Simple gifts. 
and Symbol Gifts is your reading podcast where you just read with no commentary. So on Mondays, Christian Atheists will present a discourse episode on something from Symbol Gifts. And then John and I will discuss what you speak of on Monday, on Thursday, right? through no compromise. So our first episode of The Christian Atheist this coming year will be an explanation of our new process, Mm -hmm. following on what we've just said, following up on what we just said. And then the following week, we will take one of C.S. Lewis's essays called The Seeing Eye, evaluate it quickly and pointedly on on Monday. Monday, and then Jenny and I will talk about it on Thursday at a greater depth and hopefully in a more clarified way that, yeah. <laughs> than, than I usually do, a and, more popular and, and uh, probably easier to understand format. Right. And if you want to hear The Seeing Eye, if you want to hear it read without commentary, you can go to Simple Gifts right now. Yep, it's there yeah, already. Either on YouTube or on your favorite podcasting link. So by the way, if you're listening on YouTube, please take a moment to subscribe. And no matter how you're listening, feel free to leave a comment, questions, or even topic ideas for future episodes as we begin the new year. And lastly, if you'd like to buy us a cup of coffee, there's a link in our description to do that. And have a very blessed Advent season, everyone. Mm -hmm. Merry Christmas. And Happy New Year. I am a Christian with the searching and skeptical mind of an atheist. I don't want to believe anything that isn't true. I know both sides of the looking glass, and I know them with open eyes. I choose Christ's side. I invite you to join me from wherever you stand before the looking glass. That's this week's episode. Thanks for listening. And remember, you can have your religious cake and eat it too. You can have reason, respect for science, a 21st century worldview, and be a Christian.